And welcome to another edition of The Experience with Michael Aaron Gossetis. I am your host. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> just doing a, you know, just, just doing a Saturday afternoon chill session with my homies if you're out there watching on YouTube land right now. And then you'll be able to catch this later on, you know, on the flip side on uh, anchor.fm. Um, having a Saturday morning. Cheers. Cling. Okay, so that, uh, for those of you on the podcast side, holding up a drink, it's not exactly a mimosa, but, um, you know, I just thought, you know, you know, I'll just have a little sit down fireside chat with, uh, you know, any people on live with me on YouTube on the channel or, you know, at least through the life of this drink, you know what I mean? Okay. I was debating whether or not to put music on this, and I guess I'm not because I kind of want to jam out right now and listen to some music while I'm having this little chit-chat, but usually it comes out real funky and wonky because of the headset or the microphone <laughs> or the, uh, you know... Actually, it comes out pretty good on the on the podcast side whenever this airs. It doesn't come out as good on the live stream side when I have music coming out, but it's okay. It's not necessary. Um, 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 I'm sure you all enjoy the sound of my voice, but uh, yeah. So what was I doing? I don't know. Like, um, I'll be doing podcasts later on tonight with the guys, and I just wanted to do a quick weekend edition since like <clears throat> the week weekday was pretty pretty well tied up and you know there's no content like some content like some content versus no content so I mean why not you know and um it's been pretty peachy so you know it's like well um i've been up i've been doing things i've been getting ready for tonight there's still like another article or two that i want to read um but um what do you call it oh yeah i was like yeah like let's just have a let's just have a, an afternoon um libation and um like have a chit chat with people on the experience podcast hey friends what's up girlfriends what's up squirrel friends what's up squirrel friends um, the libation of choice today, I call it, I looked it up online because I was like, well, I'm going to be drinking on the podcast. So I may as well at least be able to talk about my drink, right? Well, I was like, let me look this up and make sure there's not a name for it because I know a variation of the drink would be like a Moscow meal, vodka and ginger beer. Here's the kicker that most people, most people who are, I don't know, you don't have to be a connoisseur of alcohol to appreciate the way a drink should be served. Do you? I don't think you do. I don't think you have to be. I don't think you have to be a connoisseur. I, I just think that you have to appreciate the drink for the way the drink is supposed to be. Maybe as someone who is very particular about creative license, that is important. <laughs> but... A Moscow meal proper should be served in a copper cup. That's all I'm saying, okay? Well, I'm having, uh, I'm having, I'm having a vodka ginger ale hmm? with 
uh, pineapple. The pineapple was just to, you know, make it look frou-frou since this is the Saturday afternoon mimosa. And uh, the pineapple is just, you know, you know, it actually caused it to fizz up the carbonation quite a bit. So I was like, ooh. So I decided to call the drink the ginger spritz. Yeah, the ginger spritz because I looked it up since I was like, let me make sure I don't go out there and there's already a drink with vodka and ginger ale. That's not just called a vodka ginger ale. Well, if you put some pineapples in it because you want to class it up a bit, you can call it the ginger spritz. Yeah, there you go. So that's what I'm having. I'm having a ginger spritz on this, the first Saturday na Saturday afternoon mimosa of my life. Mm. And if you are online, on YouTube simulcasting right now, you might notice, and, and some people might have, some people might have noticed that I changed my background as well. So for the Saturday afternoon mimosa, we sit in, um, we sit in the, the, uh, twilight afternoon, uh, garden. We sit, we sit in the garden of the golden afternoon. So I have my, I have my printed floral material up. It's not the only printed floral material that I have, but it is very nice printed floral material. It's printed fabric, okay? Like, I like printed fabrics. Like, I don't know why I have a thing for it. And I'm not just talking like, you know, scarves. Like, these could, I don't know, these are your throws. If you're watching on YouTube, you're watching me play with some printed floral. This one in particular is a yellow base with a black print floral printed fabric. It's quite nice. I think it's very nice. And then the one behind me, I think it's gorgeous, actually. If you could see it with all the detail, it is... It's like a, it's like this blue on this, this blue is like, do you remember that blue in the Crayola box that was called like cornflower blue or corn something blue or periwinkle, even, even periwinkle. It's like that or a, like a very faded, very, very, very faded soft, maybe even a pastel cadet blue. Like it's that kind of blue. It's like almost a gray blue, but it's all these gorgeous flowers. And I'm sure because the flowers are actually pretty uh, detailed that there's this is an actual kind of flower. I just, I don't recognize it for its name. But um, yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. You'll never guess where I got these. I'm not going to tell you, but let's just say <clears throat> I got a lot of these in addition to some other stunning printed fabrics. And these are like it could be like a giant's handkerchief. Like, that's what I'm talking about. Like, it's just a strangest printed fabric. The, I got like a shopping cart full of those and uh, maybe like two, three piece suits. And what else did I get? Some, I got two sets of gloves. Um, I got maybe two hats. I got like a bag or two. I might have gotten some other things, but I don't remember. But it was all for about 20 or 25 bucks. Yes. Just, you know, wash everything first. But anyways, welcome to the Saturday Afternoon Mimosa with Michael Aaron Caceres here on The Experience with Michael Aaron Caceres. Tell your friends. Okay, so what else was I doing today? 
was trying to get back into this book that I was reading. Um, now, some of you may or may not have heard of this individual. And I know most of y'all have heard of this individual. At least people in my circles tend to know who this guy is. People who are like... Younger than 30, I would say. If they're younger than 30, they risk not knowing who this man was. The um, initiated youth of the millennial, however, they tend to know who this man is. So here's the book right here. The book is called Kingdom of Fear by one Hunter S. Thompson. Now... If you know anything about me and Hunter S. Thompson, you know that we never met and you know that he's dead and you know that I'm alive and you know that I have nothing to do with him per se other than the fact that Hunter S. Thompson's work, particularly in, as cliched as this might sound, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, was something that totally, 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 and I'm going to use this word. Remember, if you've heard this word, it's not always a good word to use. The word is influenced. Hunter S. Thompson influenced uh, my youth. My adolescence, no. Uh, yeah, I guess my adolescence, you know, that, that uh, tumultuous time in those teenage years where you are discovering yourself and stuff like that. Um, that is, uh, he, that's the kind of person that influenced me. Hunter S. Thompson, um, Johnny Depp. You know, because growing up, I was always a very, very big Johnny Depp fan. Like, I was always like, ooh, Johnny Depp. Like, I mean, like, Johnny Depp leads to, you know, like, Willy Wonka, leads to, like, Tim Burton, leads to, like, Batman, leads to, like, you know, um, all the movies that Tim Burton ever did, leads to, like, the people who influenced Tim Burton, leads to, like, Danny Elfman, leads to, like, you know, Susie and the Banshees, leads to, like, Michelle Pfeiffer and Batman dancing to a Susie Sue song, like, you know, like, that's kind of, like, where all my shades of separation of gray go. <laughs> so... You know, Hunter S. Thompson. But um, I was, you know, honestly, I was, I honestly, I loved Batman Returns with uh, with Michael Keaton and Danny um, DeVito and Michelle Pfeiffer. And obviously, I saw that movie in theaters back in 1992. Back in 1992, I had no idea that Danny Elfman scored the film because I was but a child. And I wanted to get the action figures of Danny Elfman um, I, I apologize, Oingo Boingo did not have any action figures, but let me tell you what, uh, Batman did. So, you know, I was the 1992 era Batman Returns in love with the fucking vinyl leather fucking outfit that, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer is wearing as Catwoman. That is Michael Aaron Caceres, the little gay, the little gay boy who never knew he was gay. <laughs> falling in love with Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, anyways, so getting right back to what I was talking about. 
don't even remember what I was talking about. Oh, Hunter S. Thompson. Um, no, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I knew, I mean, the, duh, I, I saw, I saw freaking, you know, Batman Returns, and, and I, and I loved that, that, um, I love that scene, you know, because, you know, you're a little gay boy, and you're like, oh my god, like, not only is there, like, uh, you know, like, uh, a bunch of, you know, uh, men committing actions and all this stuff in this movie, and not only is it colorful, not only is it dark, not only is it dark and, like, it's kind of different, it's not like your, your normal superhuman movie, um, there's also like a Catwoman in there, and she's a whip, and she's so fierce that she made that costume all by herself, and I can't sew for a lick. And you know, it's like, and then and he's like, I saw her first, and then he's like, things change, Batman. No, but then, but then, what happens? Think back with me, children. I know you remember. They're dancing there at uh, at. <laughs> They're dancing there at the Shrek Ball. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. The Shrek Ball. Okay, wait. Shrek Ball. Who played Shrek? Wasn't it? It was that guy. It was that guy. It was the guy from um, that one movie by who? Quentin Tarantino. How are all these people linked up? Um, yeah. <sighs> Uh, Christopher Walken. Okay, God. Okay, so anyways. So they're at Christopher Walken's Shrek Ball. And, because uh, his name is Max Shrek, remember? And uh, what happens? Her and Bruce Wayne end up dancing on the floor, under a lit floor. Her and this, her and this, this uh, bedazzled and sweet sequined black dress. And, and they start talking about, you know, they start waxing poetically about their little, um, you know, mistletoe up above. And lo and behold, who is that, you know, who is that beautiful voice playing in the background? Who are they dancing to? Who is this song of deception for Michael Keaton and Michelle Pfeiffer? Susie Sue of Susie and the Banshees and how are she connected? Oh, okay. So let's go back to Hunter S. Thompson. Okay, because we're already getting off track here. It must be this Saturday afternoon mimosa. Ah, uh, you know, you know who that reminds me of. We're going to put a quick, we're going to interject a quick thought and scene change. Uh, to be continued, we'll be right back. Hunter S. Thompson. She says, To roll the perfect bologna noodle strudel, you just add a little bit of the sherry. I don't add any less, but I don't add any more either. Oh, ha, ha, ha. Or maybe it was vice versa. It's like, I don't add any more, but I don't add any less either. And then what happens to her? What happens to Microwave Marge? What happens to Microwave Marge? I ask you. Microwave Marge gets attacked by a bunch of um, mean-witted gremlins that pop out of the cupboard and throw pans into the microwave. And she's like, you can't do that. That's what happens to Microwave Marge. And for some reason, I just reminded myself of Microwave March. Another movie that I saw in theaters growing up in the 90s. So this book, Kingdom of Fear, 
by Hunter S. Thompson. So like I was saying, he influenced my life growing up. I showed the movie Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas to an entire bus of high school students on the way to Florida because, um, you know, I was a band nerd the first two years of my life in high school. And, (laughs) you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean... You know, I, I my family is very much so musically inclined, but, you know, it was a good place to lay low. You know, it was a good place to lay low. I was so talented. I could rock that wood block and I could rock them uh, cymbals and tambourines like nobody else. Let me tell you what. I had a bongo solo, you know, but... Uh, I got to listen to all the guys going on and on every single day about weed, weed, weed. All I want is weed, 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 weed. That's all they would say. Um, so it got to the point that I was like, oh, weed, you know, weed, mm, weed. Let's let's have some weed. And so, you know, I ventured into my pothead days. And in that venture, I found Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas with Johnny Depp. Now, it was a natural, it was a natural, it was a natural current because I was already into Johnny Depp growing up. I was already that fat little boy that was going to turn into that gothic stud in high school. And I was already like, Johnny Depp, Johnny Depp. Like, I already liked all of that stuff. I already liked Edward Scissorhands, you know. I already liked crybaby i was already watching john waters movies when i did not even know they were john waters movies you know what i mean it's like it it seeped into the ethos of my youth as as sheltered away as i was from everything because guys unlike most of you guys out there and i'm not saying this makes me any better than you guys but what i am saying is it makes me a little bit different so please have mercy you know, I missed out on Nightmare on Elm Street. I missed out on Chucky. I missed out on Hellraiser. I missed out on Aliens. I missed out on, you know, and I saw Aliens only by virtue of the fact that on Saturday and Sunday on free TV, back in the day when we had the television box and you had the little antennas, you had network television, see, back in the day. That's how you used to watch things you know, and, you know, so you would have your little TV box, not flat screen, your box of a TV, and, you know, you would receive radio waves that sent you movies and shows, or if you had cable, you know, you had a cable box, or you had, you know, eventually they got rid of the cable boxes, and they put it into the power lines, you know, basically, but um, they would have Aliens show every now and then, like, maybe, you know, three or four times a year they would show aliens but it would be the made for tv version so i would get to see ripley minus all the bad words and minus all the really gruesome scenes but missed out on you know halloween uh missed out on i already said freddy krueger um all that stuff you know Never saw a rated R movie until I was probably like 15. Maybe, maybe, maybe I didn't realize I was seeing one when I was like 12. I think the one that I saw when I was like, I don't know, maybe 10. Because, you know, ugh, anyways, but like it was, it was, um, what was that movie? It was The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 
the original 1970s version when I was like 10 or 9 or 11. But that movie fucking fucked me up. I was like, ah! like no it's like the back of my neck i was like oh my god the back of my neck oh my god i'm never gonna live like oh and then this like you know this fucking fat leather-faced pervert just running at you with the fucking you know chainsaw it was just horrifying i think that movie there's this other movie that really scarred me growing up and that movie was called fortress I don't know if any of y'all ever heard or seen that movie Fortress, but that movie Fortress, oh my god. It's not even a supernatural ghost movie. It's a movie about kids that get kidnapped by four men wearing, like, animal masks. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Three of them have an animal mask. Or maybe it's four of them have an animal mask and there's one Santa Claus mask. Or three of them have an animal mask. It's a fox, a Santa Claus, a duck... And I think a dog, maybe? I can't remember what the last one is, but I remember the fox and the duck for sure. I don't think it's a cat. But it it was just, ugh, those two movies. And that's about the extent of rated R violent films I've seen, things that have cuss words in it when I was growing up, until I was like, you know, 15 or 16. And I still haven't. I still haven't seen them. I remember seeing The Exorcist for the first time when I was like 18, maybe. And I remember so much buildup into how scary it was. And I remember, um, you know, oh my God, you're going to get possessed. I remember, oh my God, watch out because Satan's going to follow you home. I remember, oh my God, watch out because you're inviting demons into your house. I remember hearing about all the myths that happened on the set. I remember all of this buildup about The Exorcist and... I was like, oh my god, it's gonna be crazy. We're gonna watch The Exorcist. Oh my god, should I pray first? Or should I, you know, what should I do to prepare myself for this? Because I don't want to be spiritually attacked by any demon because we watched a movie about it. Because Linda Blair and The Exorcist. Well, um, what do you call it? Uh, watched the movie and I remember laughing. I remember talking. I was, you know, like, I wasn't like, oh my god, it was not. Maybe I think the people who were showing it to me saw it when they were a kid and they were scarred and, you know, maybe they threw up and their heads spinned in circles or something like that. But that was not my experience watching it. And I was like, okay, you know, I mean, like, I can, I guess I could appreciate it for what it is. I see people to this day still try and recreate it. Um, and I'm not saying that those forces or forces as such do not exist, but what I am saying is that that movie didn't do it for me. It didn't, it didn't do for me or, or do to me, I guess, what I thought it would have done watching it because I was always told that, you know, oh my God, if you watch movies like that, you will get possessed and it didn't happen. So I was like, okay, well, I mean, that's fine. You know, like I I didn't want to get possessed. I mean, that wasn't the point of watching the movie. You know what I mean? It's kind of like when you play with the Ouija board or Ouija board, you don't plan on getting followed home by a spirit. It just happens. You know, you know, that's why personally I don't mess with divination. Like I said, it's not like I don't believe in these things. I believe in energy. Hello. Like a lot of these things are very, very real. And when we're talking about 
divination and you have to understand that when you get into all of those different types and spectrum of you know um energy manipulation we'll call it that to put a little scientific hat on it we'll call it energy manipulation which i am talking about witchcraft i'm talking about divination i'm talking about you know uh reiki i'm talking about um you know uh, satanism i'm talking about ritual magic uh, whenever we talk about that we'll put it under the scientific hat of energy manipulation okay because they're using even their willpower to manipulate the energy that that they are getting to use for their means if you want to call it magic you can maybe this is the beginning of magic Maybe this is where the legends of magic come from, from the Dark Ages, when they were remembering the times of Atlantis, when we were advanced enough to do weird shit. Maybe this is the natural progression of our repetition. Maybe we will be going to the stars, but just maybe it's not in the way that we expect it, right? So, anyways, getting back to it, because this mag's almost gone. We'll stay through the pineapples, at least. Um, Hunter S. Thompson. Let's wrap up with him, because that's who I was, like, you know, talking about when I got here. What time is it? Oh, yeah. We got a wrap-ups tune. It's almost the magic hour, and that means dinner time. So, oh, so what I wanted to do was just, I was going to share this with you about Hunter. Um, it comes from, because I'm reading this book, this book is Hunter S. Thompson, Kingdom of Fear. Okay. And this is the last book that he ever wrote. And it actually came out after he, um, died, but he obviously finished it before he died. Now y'all know how he died. He didn't die. He committed suicide. He shot himself. The story is that he shot himself at his desk with one of his revolvers while he was on the phone with someone and I believe it was his son-in-law was in the house at the time in another room and he remembered hearing his a hunter yelling or talking or you however it is that hunter communicated or emoted he was there and then you know shot and then he's dead and, you know, they don't know who he was on the phone with and or they don't have a context of what their conversation was about, right? Then Kingdom of Fear comes out. Kingdom of Fear is... Um, it's quite an interesting book. Um... But I wanted to share with you something. Well, well, we'll read the. Let me read the blurb to you, so this way you get an idea. Because the book that he had written, and the movie that came out of it, from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, was the one that completely inspired me and influenced my life. It influenced it, it influenced my life, and it inspired my first novel, which is called um, The Distance to the End, um, and my my innate love for Las Vegas also comes from that as well, because, you know, he was a gonzo journalist and that's what he did. But okay, so for Kingdom of Fear, just so you know what the book is about, it says, brilliant, provocative, outrageous, and brazen, Hunter S. Thompson's infamous rule-breaking 
in his journalism, in his life, and of the law, changed the shape of American letters and the face of American icons. Kingdom of Fear traces the course of Thompson's life as a rebel, from a smart-mouthed Kentucky kid flouting all authority to a convention-defying journalist who came to personify a wild fusion of fact, fiction, and mind-altering substances. Call it the evolution of an outlaw. Here are the formative experiences that comprise Hunter's, uh, Thompson's legendary trajectory alongside the weird and the ugly, whether detailing his exploits as a foreign correspondent in Rio, his job as night manager of the notorious O'Farrell Theater in San Francisco, his epic run for sheriff of Aspen on the freak power ticket, or the sensational legal maneuvering that led his full acquittal in the famous 99 Days trial, Thompson is at the peak of his narrative powers in Kingdom of Fear, and this boisterous, blistering ride illuminates as never before the professional logic, the professional and ideological risk taking a literary genius and transgressive icon. So... The reason why this is interesting to me, because it's a it's his, his last book. It's his last book of memoirs that were by him. But in this book, there's supposed to be a big Bush family drop. But guess what? Hunter S. Thompson commits suicide before the book is published. So is there a big Bush family drop? Because there's a lot of things about Hunter S. Thompson that um, have been floating around the campfire that I've known about for a minute, but I have not explored as much per se. I've kept it on the back burners because it's kind of one of those things where it's like, damn it, you know, like, that's your boy. That's your hero. This is the man that the idea that he presented in life, the thing that he did... Uh, kind of inspired your way of living to an extent, you know, and that is to say, you know, Hunter was the founder of Gonzo Journalism, and that is uh, an that is basically an act, you know, wherein you uh, you as a journalist put yourself into the story in order to give the story. It's it's it could almost be a memoir, but it's not because it's not something that you did with your life because that's who you were. It's something you did with your life because that was your profession, you know. Um, Another way that I would look at that would be um, like a method actor. A method actor will live the lifestyle that that is trying seeking to portray in an acting um, you know situation. So they will you know they will then live that lifestyle or live that action or live that emotion something whatever situation scenario live in a way that would help them um, portray that in a, in a more accurate way. That is a method actor. Where is, well, is there room for a method writer? <laughs> you know, because in a sense, that's what, you know, Hunter S. Thompson was. He was a method writer because he was living the story that he was going to then write up and sell to Rolling Stone magazine or, you know, to whomever his literary agent was going to peddle his work to. So, I know, you know, I haven't really, I haven't really thrown myself into the histories of Hunter S. Thompson, but I know most of it. Um, the one thing that had come up was uh, some particular actions that he may or may not have been involved in, but we're going to go more with the may have been involved with. Um, but, but we'll see in just a sec, because 
something about this man that I hadn't understood. When you see something about, say, like the way that Johnny uh, Depp portrayed Hunter S. Thompson, which, according to all involved, Johnny Depp did a much better job than um, uh, Bill Murray at portraying Hunter S. Thompson because Bill Murray was given the opportunity to represent the legendary who was legs and hairy Hunter S. Thompson, but bald, gonzo journalist who basically he was okay so he he was basically like an athlete to the celebrities he was an athlete to the celebrities of 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 like culture and art trash like it's like in the 1950s 60s 70s there was like this whole movement to just bring you degrading art and to bring you just like, you know, like dehumanizing art, whatever form that might have been, as long as it wasn't positive, as long as it wasn't, you know, uh, a lo- what was conceived as something that gave you a good feeling or a good vibe, it was promoted. And I'm not saying that that's what gonzo journalism and what Hunter S. Thompson partook in, but I think that this man really pushed that ability to the edge because he understood that it was there. He knew somehow someone had told him the secret, hey, guess what, Hunter? You can get pushed to the limits of fame. You can get, you can be taken care of. You can be given the excesses of the world. If you can present your stories in a way or maybe even present ideas in a way or maybe give us a perspective that's, you know, this particular way. And all you have to do is X, Y, or Z. Do you think that's something that's possible? I don't know. <laughs> this is what, um, this is what Timothy Ferris had to say in the introduction. I'm just going to read a brief part of it. And it was stunning to me because it was a different perspective on him that I hadn't thought about before. Hunter is a lifelong student of fear, and a teacher of it, too. He titled a song that he wrote recently with Warren Zevin, You're a whole different person when you're scared. And he doesn't feel that he knows you properly until he knows that person. On various occasions, he has lunged at me with an evil-looking horse syringe, brandished loaded guns, stun guns, and cans of mace, and taken me on high-speed rides to remote murder sites in the dead of night, and I doubt that he finds my reaction to such travails particularly interesting, since I've always calmly trusted him with my life. Those whom such treatment transforms into someone more apt to house hunters' infrared sensors of viperous curiosity are in for an interesting evening. At the same time, this howling violence freak, habitually loaded with potent, to- um, with potent toxicants and a skull full of Beethoven-grade uh, egomania, is studious and thoughtful, courtly and caring, curi- uh, curiously peace-loving in his way, and unwaveringly, unwaveringly generous. 
When he and I were young and broken, I was fired from the last job I've ever held. The first thing he did was offer to send me $400, which, although he didn't know I knew it, was all the money he had left in the bank at the time. His fundamental decency helps explain how he has managed to survive his many excesses, as do the fact that he's blessed with extraordinary reflexes. I once saw him accidentally knock a drink off a table with a back with the back of his hand while reaching for a ringing phone and then catch it, unspilled with the same hand on the way down. When we onlookers expressed astonishment at this feat, he said, Yes, well, when we're applauding my aptitude at making re rescues, we should keep in mind who causes most of the accidents in the first place. I've never met anyone who really knew Hunter who didn't love him. So, I mean, that's a sentiment that I guess you could say that I would like, oh, that's a nice sentiment to share. Um, I found it quite interesting that, uh, I found it quite interesting that um, he was actually the kind of person that didn't feel that he knew who you were unless he knew how you were when you were afraid. That's an interesting thing about Hunter S. Thompson, I think, but... There's a little bit more that you could say about this. Um, let me continue the read. Let me just let me just let me just finish this up here real quick. It says, "So what we have here is a thrilling, if frightening, man of action." As spectacular and unpredictable as a bolt of lightning, being observed by an owl-like oracular author who, although he shares his skin, is as perpetually surprised and bemused by his behavior as the rest of us are. In Kingdom of Fear, the interactions of this curious couple informs adventures like Hunter's pre-dawn excursion to his old friend Jack Nicholson's house, his jeep loaded with all kinds of jokes and gimcracks, intended to gladden the heart of Nicholson's son. In addition to the bleeding elk heart, there was a massive outdoor amplifier, a tape recording of a pigeon being eaten alive by bears, a 1 million watt spotlight, and a 9mm Smith & Wesson semi-automatic pistol with teak wood handles and a box of high-powered ammunition. There was also a 40 million candle power parachute flare that would light up the valley for 40 miles for 40 seconds that would seem to annoy anyone lucky um, enough to be awake at the time the first blinding flash of a mid-range nuclear device that might signal the end of the world. When the detonation of these devices from a precipice overlooking Nicholson's household fails to produce the anticipated joyful welcome, Hunter feels disconcertingly that he is being snubbed. <laughs> I was beginning to have mixed feelings about this visit, he confesses, while preparing to leave the bleeding elk heart on Nicholson's doorstep. But he soon cheers up, wondering... Why am I drifting into negativity? Which, if you drain off the color and turn down the violence, is pretty much the human condition. We do things without knowing why, wonder at the consequences, and know either where we came from nor where we are going. Robert Frost wrote that we dance round in a, in a ring and suppose, but the secret sits in the center and knows to know.
His aim, as Joseph Comrade put in his preface to the Joseph Conrad, do you know who Joseph Conrad is? Joseph Conrad, Heart of Darkness, wrote a book. I'm sorry, I had to stop because I'm going to say a word right now that um, I'm going to say it because this is the name of a book that was written by Joseph Conrad. Joseph Conrad put in his preface to The Nigger and the Narcissus, a work that mightily impressed a young hunter that was something to roll around in my craw and to compare myself to. It sit a high standard is by the power of the written word to make you hear, to make you feel to make you see, to bring us encouragement, consolation, fear, charm, all you demand, and perhaps also that glimpse of truth for which you have forgotten to ask. And that, in part, is why we love him. Ooh, so here's some ideas that are coming to my mind right now. Because you saw how I just had that little bit of, um, what's the word? I just had a bit of... Um, of um when your reality get kind of gets like distorted there's a word for it but that just happened to me and that's because i was faced with am i going to be a public media figure or you know person who releases shit and shares shit about my life and has a fucking podcast am i going to do that and use this word the n word that comes from a preface to a book that joseph conrad had written or am I going to, um, you know, am I going to just carry on with the assurity that, you know, I, I know I'm not racist, so why would it be a big issue? And now I'm having a discussion about it, you know? So um, I went ahead and said that, but the idea I got from this now is, you know, like maybe we can have a conversation about that because that's something that we shouldn't be ashamed to say, but then we have to say, well, who is Joseph Conrad? And was Joseph Conrad a racist? Because he wrote a preface in this book called The Nigger of the Narcissists. So what the hell is that about? You know, well, we'll probably have to look at the nigger and the narcissist then. And I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll read it. We'll see what happens. We'll see if I don't get banned off YouTube. I mean, by all means, Joseph Conrad, look it up right now. It's N-I-G-G-E-R of the narcissist. Like that's the name of it. So I can't help that that is something that just happened right now. But now we're going to get to the bottom to it. And I don't care who is on top. Now, with that said... That is just something I thought that was interesting, that uh, Mr. Thompson was the type of individual that would intentionally do things to make you afraid because he did not see you as the kind of person that he thought you were. He didn't see, he felt he didn't see you as, he didn't see the genuine you unless he knew what you look like when you were at your utmost peaks of fear. Could you imagine hanging around with a friend like that? That's like, that's like the uncle that like, you know, uh, will, will hold you underwater and, and, and pretend to drown you until at the very last minute he lets you up or like the uncle who will throw you in the pool or, you know, that's the person that you can't trust. That's the person in your life that does practical jokes on you and is just causing you all this stress and anxiety when you're around them. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is the kind of person that Hunter S. Thompson is. Oh, but you know, at the same time, it's kind of fun. And at the same time, he also seemed to have, you know, the means with which to live that kind of life, you know, like her, you know, I'm just your average weirdo. 
weirdo over here doing just weird things and drinking and having drugs all the time. And you know, you know, I, I want to be entertained, so I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna and he pulls out a gun and he shoot. He pretends to shoot you in the face, and you you don't know if he's playing Russian roulette. You don't know if he really has a bullet in there. You don't know if he really wants to shoot you, or you don't know if all the chambers are empty. Like you don't know what's going on. Like not only are there two possibilities with Hunter S. Thompson, there are four that I just listed, and there could be five or six more that you know Hunter S. Thompson is gonna do this to you, but. He's your friend. So you just have to learn that this man wants to know how you are. He wants to know how well you are at handling pressure. Well, let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. When I come back, because the magic hour is fast upon me, and I have a previous appointment that I have promised, but I will be back. I'm going to go freshen up my glass. Um, because the magic hour is fast approaching, and I have to be prepared for that. I promised I would be, and I will be. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about Hunter S. Thompson. Because then after that, I have to make dinner. Because we have to be on the show tonight. There's no telling what we're going to talk about. But I have a feeling uh, I have a feeling I know what we may talk about. So we'll see what's up. Because there's a lot going on in that essence as well. If you are listening on the podcast, you will experience this episode as a single episode. You will have no idea that there's been... Um, a loss of time between this segment and the next segment, but you might hear a commercial. So enjoy that commercial. And we will be right back with the experience with Michael Aaron Casares. Something is haunting the town. Adam Longoria has gone missing, and his sister claims she's been seeing a bad man in the shadows. Jesse Bachman confronts a terror that is haunting the town of Suval, but will he be able to stop a pure evil that wants him dead? Get the chilling new novella by Michael Aaron Casadis, author of The Distance to the End. A Trick of the Eyes, a stunning new work of horror that is keeping readers turning the page. Get A Trick of the Eyes anywhere books are sold, online or in stores, ask for it by name. A Trick of the Eyes by Michael Aaron Casares.
And we're back. <laughs> I told you I'd be back. Oh, my friend left. But anyways, they're going to try and see what I was talking about, but they're not going to be able to see what I was talking about. So um, I took a quick break. Um, so, okay, so this is the way it's going to work now. If you are listening on the podcast side, you're going to hear this entire program with no problem whatsoever. If you were listening on the YouTube side, well, then we just took like, I don't know, a five or ten minute break. I suppose maybe I could have put some jams on, but the jams usually don't come out that clear whenever I am uh, doing it as a live stream. So I just went ahead and took that quick break because we had to do a magic hour recess. I and a good friend of mine. And I had to refill my mimosa because after all, this is Saturday afternoon mimosa. And look, would you look at that? I've already almost finished the second helping again. I was down to the pineapples. And I just, I was down to the pineapples and then I went out and I had a cigarette. Um, I, I ogled the neighbors. I refilled my drink. I had a, a brunch time slice or two of garlic bread because I figured if I'm going to be having this uh, ginger spritz, I may as well, you know, also have uh, some sustenance in my stomach. And then I came back. Welcome back to the experience with Michael Aaron Cussers. Um, Okay, so where we last left off, we were talking about Hunter S. Thompson. And basically what we were doing, if you remember, we were, uh, we were just, we were just, we were just giving adulations to Hunter. We were just, we were just, oh, Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson, Hunter. He was the man who formed my early years. He was the formative uh, catalyst to all of my artistic endeavors. He's the reason why I got into DMT. Actually, no, Hunter S. Thompson is not the person who got me into DMT. Thank you very much. I don't believe, um, I believe I've read interviews where he's mentioned it. Maybe he wrote an article about it, but not about it, but included it in the article. No, Hunter S. Thompson. Thompson did not teach me about DMT. Thank you very much. Di- dimethyltryptamine, I think, is the scientific term for. If you don't know what DMT is, look it up. Um, it's a very well. DMT is basically a drug that your body creates naturally, kind of like your body has cannabinoid receptors, so that it can receive cannabinoids. Not cannibals. Okay, this isn't Hollywood. In the words of Dolores O'Riordan, or O'Riordan of the Cranberries, this is not Hollywood. And then she died in her tub, just like Whitney Houston. Same scenario. Was it a recording her album or, you know, um, performing at an awards ceremony. They died in the same hotel that that was happening in two inches of water in their bathtub. Drunk and on peels, they drowned in two inches of water. Don't be a Whitney Houston. Put down that methamphetamine. Put down that crack cocaine. So basically what the scenario that would make me think here is... Whitney was on a bender. 
It was day 13 of Crack Cocaine Abuse and Orgies by Whitney Houston. And she was like, oh, I've got to perform tonight. Let me, let me just do a hot soak. Let me do a hot soak and get all these impurities out. And she sat in her tub. And by the time the water had filled to two inches, the worn out body of Whitney Houston, whom after being awake for 13 days on drugs and orgies, passed out face first. She went face first. She went purse first into the water. Whitney Houston did. And so did Dolores O'Riordan of the Cranberries. You all remember the Cranberries. You all remember um, Zombie in my head. No, is that uh, in my head? I can't sing. I'm sorry. I shouldn't even try. Like, I've tortured people at karaoke's. I promised you. They're like, find a key. Anyways, both of these, both of these, um, both of these musicians who had their own respective, you know, um, popularities. Um, I, I loved the Cranberries growing up. I can say the Cranberries was one of the first four cassette albums I ever owned as a child. I was like 12. I was like, ooh, Columbia House. I get to pick five cassettes, mommy. And I'll give one to you. And one of them was... No Need to Argue by the Cranberries. 1990 or 1991, maybe? Maybe 92 at the latest. Because uh, before that was their first album. Everyone else is doing it. So why can't we? Which I'm like, what were they doing, Miss O'Reardon? Because I know Miss O'Reardon had had bouts of suicide before but she died the same way Whitney Houston died. Now what is the chance that two internationally renowned musicians and singers in the music industry will both die in the same fashion as one another and it be incidental? Do you think Dolores was saying, oh I'm so depressed I'm so depressed because that's the story that they've spun that I'm going to go ahead and lay myself down face first in two inches of water, just like Whitney Houston did in tribute to my sister over there in America. Do you think Dolores said that? I don't think Dolores said that. And I also don't think that Whitney Houston was up for 13 days on a sex and drug bender, <laughs> you know? And I'm not a Whitney Houston fan. Growing up a gay child, of course, I was very much into And I Will Always Love You, a la The Bodyguard. Give me some Patrick Swayze and Whitney Houston, please. Oh, wait, that's Ghost. Oh, wait, that's, uh, <laughs> that's Whoopi Goldberg. Anyways, so, no, that was Whitney Houston, my bad. <laughs> I'm thinking of a bodyguard, you know, um, oh, that was all the hits. You put, you put that song back to back with, uh, Celine Dion's Titanic song and you have a gay boy's paradise. You have a gay blouse. Is that what a blouse? All the blouses were into Whitney Houston and into Celine Dion. 
Um, 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 I don't know where Whitney Houston fell in the no, black hat, white hat museum. I would guess she fell in the white hat museum. And that's why she had songs like, I believe the children are our future. Because she was like, oh my God, you want me to come over here and do what to that child? Oh my God, thank goodness you are all wearing masks because if you weren't wearing masks, I would totally not be able to work in this industry tomorrow. But I am just not going to do that to this child. Thank you. I believe the children are our future. Thank you, fair Illuminati. Keep your masks on. I don't want to know who you are. The children are our future. This is Whitney Houston. I'm out. That's what I think happened with Whitney Houston. And then what, 20 years later... 30 years later, they're like, Whitney, because you were out that night, we want your daughter. And Whitney was like, no, take me instead. And they drowned her in two feet of water with a bunch of pills. And then it happened to Dolores or Reardon of the Cranberries. But of course, it took at least, what, five years or more before we found out exactly what happened to Dolores. Because what did they tell Americans what did they tell Americans who are of the post-Kurt Cobain era? Oh my god, Kurt Cobain was so depressed. I'm going to be an angst-ridden teenager and I'm going to cut my wrists. Well, they told Americans that Dolores O'Riordan committed suicide. That's what they told us. They told Americans that Dolores O'Riordan of the Cranberries committed suicide because we already had the narrative here that Dolores O'Riordan was suicidal because what, back in the 90s or early 2000s, what did Dolores try and do? Dolores tried to kill herself. Even though this woman, this talented artist, this visionary, yeah, so maybe you you want to say she, she just copied... Um, the, the lyrical, you know, talents of Elizabeth Frazier from the Cocteau Twins. Sure, if you want to say that, fine, whatever. I don't think so. I think Dolores, I don't think that was Dolores. The, the Cocteau Twins were never so much political as the Cranberries were. And Dolores definitely had political music in her albums. And, you know, even in the third albums on the Cranberries, she has this song that saith, and I quote, this is not Hollywood. She knew what was going on inside the industry. I believe my spidey sense is correct in saying this. And she, like Whitney Houston, was either sacrificed or was a debt that needed to be paid off. And they drowned them both in two inches of water. They said one committed suicide and they said one overdosed. But this is the way they went in the hotel where she was producing her album, in the hotel where she was going to be performing for an award ceremony, Whitney Houston and Dolores O'Riordan of the Cranberries. This is not a conspiracy, but this is an examination of facts to which maybe you can decide for yourself whether or not something else is going on here. I mean, what are the odds in a million, right? That's what I'm saying. So anyways, so what does this have to do with this book, Kingdom of Fear by Hunter S. Thompson? I don't know. No, I know practically well because Hunter S. Thompson was involved in a lot more things than we would be privy to believe existed. Let me tell you what, because 
I was heavily influenced by Hunter S. Thompson, as I said in the previous segment. I was heavily influenced in the things and the decisions that I made growing up. I was inspired by him to write my first novel, The Distance to the End. As a gonzo journalist, I know, hey, I'm not a journalist. I'm not here reporting stories to you. I'm not telling you real life in my writing because I'm a writer. So I'm going to present to you fiction because I've always given you what? Poetry. (laughs) I've always given you the truth of my soul, but I could never find a way to give you the truth of my fiction because I couldn't find a way to do it. And then I did. And that was basically method writing. Um, But... Gonzo Journalism, Method Writing, Method Writing, Gonzo Journalism. I believe I spoke about it in the last segment. Please refer to the last 20 minutes of this uh, of this podcast if you're now just tuning in. But anyways, so with um, with Kingdom of Fear and with Hunter, that Hunter was privy to a lot of things that were going on. Hello. Like Hunter S. Thompson to Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp to this, you know, actor that I adored growing up because I am from that generation, you know, like I saw all his movies in the theater, you know, I saw Edward Scissorhands in the theater, I saw everything, erased. you know, I saw all of his movies. And so when he comes out with Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, that just opens that door for me. I'm like a precious, uh, malleable mind of like 13 or 14, right? And um, so Johnny Depp. And then so I read up about a lot of the things that happen. Now, maybe some of y'all have seen that meme and it says uh, Johnny Depp and John Cusack and Hunter S. Thompson with a blow up doll in a convertible on the side of the road. And there's a picture of them. Like someone took a picture of them riding up on them on the side of the road, like on the street, like driving up on them with the three of these, you know, celebrities and... and uh, <laughs> You know, and I'm sure if you were to look close enough or I'm sure if like, you know, you're able to have seen, I'm sure there was like, you know, drug paraphernalia or maybe I'm just being presumptuous, but like, (laughs) I thought that was kind of, that's the kind of craziness that I'm talking about. That's like where the distance to the end of my book is at. Like, it's about just fuck it. And so like, it seems that that's the way that this man lived his life. But to what extent I ask you, because it was all of what? We're in 2021. Let's hop back to 2008. Maybe let's go back. What, what is that? That's like what? Eight, 2008, 11, 10, 3, 7 years. Like we jump back like 7 years or so. And 6, 7, yeah, 7, 7 to 8 years, right? We jump back 7 to 8 years and this is where I'm hearing whispers about Hunter S. Thompson being involved in um, things that you know, I wouldn't necessarily want to I wouldn't necessarily want to associate myself with any kind of individual and particularly an artist or someone who has, I don't know, like that's, you know, because like within, in the war of the artist, in the war of the artist soul, there's always, especially when you're not confident, there's always that question of, 
um, well, am I an artist if I sell out and, and if I go ahead and go work for a company and draw for them or write stories for them or make music for them and I do what they tell me, does that mean I've sold out? Does that mean that I'm not an artist? Does that mean that I've just sold out as an artist? Like those questions are legitimate questions because there's that battle. Like I want to be able to live comfortably off of my creations because I have remained true to myself and to my vision and to my art or I'm going to live comfortably off of my talent because I have been employed by people to use it in the way that they want me to. These are valid points when it comes to the work of an artist. They're very valid points. Very, very valid. And if you don't have the competence to pursue it um, and you don't have the confidence to do it, you know, like it can really, it can really mess you up, you know, but what I learned from um and i actually learned this from um a band or a group that i like of musicians um whom i'm whom like hunter s thompson may and and allison goldfrapp and maybe even lady tron uh, uh, maybe adrenochrome junkies. <laughs> they may be adrenochrome junkies. Why is it that every musician that I like and every artist and every, you know, uh, voice of a generation changed the face of journal- journalism, writers and, and actors, Johnny Depp? Why is it that all of them are adrenaline? I'm sorry, not no, not adrenaline junkies. There is a very distinct difference adrenochrome junkies adrenochrome junkies like why is it that all the people that i like seem to be adrenochrome junkies anyways okay so from this band that i like called the knife uh there was a lyric um there was a lyric in one of her songs uh that they wrote and the lyric said I do some things for money. I do some things for myself. And I don't know why that impressed upon my mind that it was like, oh, so you can do uh, artwork for money. Like, oh, I sold out. But you can also just do artwork for yourself. And, you know, maybe this is something that's really obvious but to someone like someone like myself who was an artist that had no confidence back in the day like this was like an aha moment it was like an epiphany it was like oh it was like i can make things for money because i have the skill but then i can also have side projects so and i guess like i just didn't think that you could do more things than one at the time and that's what i'm doing now so anyways but um, getting back to what I was talking about with Hunter and, and using all those examples, um, he was involved uh, in that time. I had uh, gotten wind of the fact that he was involved or may have possibly filmed snuff films. So um, there's, there's that I learned that and I first heard that from Alex Jones. And I was like, oh, well, 
at the time, you know, Alex Jones was the kind of individual that when I listened to him, he wasn't always giving me the gitchy feeling and making my soul feel depressed. Um, so I, I felt like it was pretty spot on and I thought, Hey, you know, it's, uh, there's probably some truth to this, but I didn't choose to look into it, obviously, because I was like, like, um, anyways, so I was like, well, you know, that, that could be a possibility. I'm very sure of it. Like this man was crazy. And like, we were talking about Johnny Depp, you know, and like, uh, how that tied to it. And then I had read stories with Johnny Depp where he talked about, uh, you know, um, some of the crazy things that they would do and how he basically mirrored and lived with and hung around with Hunter in preparation as method acting practice to be Hunter S. Thompson whenever he filmed Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Um, and, and so that was interesting. But to close the circle on DMT, dimethyltryptyline, do you remember we were talking about that? Hunter S. Thompson didn't in, introduce me to DMT. He introduced me to adrenochrome. Now, adrenochrome is uh, something that he talked about in his book. Now, I've read the Fear and Loathing Las Vegas novel, the book. Um, I've read that book about three times. And he mentions it in the book a few times. And he talks about it. Because, yes, uh, as you've seen in the movies, that's what that's what it says in the book, you know, that there was a guy that was a Satanist <laughs> and he owed he owed he owed his lawyer, Oscar, Oscar, um, oh, is it Pata? I think is his name or Acosta. I'm sorry, Oscar Acosta. He owned he owes Os the Satanist owes Oscar money. And um, Oscar is the guy who's played by Benicio Del Torre in the movie. Very fucking funny. I mean, that is just, that's, I love that movie. I love it, love it, love it. I showed it to all of my uh, fellow uh, band students when I was um, in high school on a bus trip to Florida. We watched the movie. I forever changed their lives with that movie. And, uh, <laughs> um, it's a funny movie. So the Satanist owes him money and instead of, you know, like, uh, paying him back in cash, she gives him some adrenochrome and they're like, well, where does this come from? And so this book you have to understand came out like what in 1970 something like this is the book from the seventies. So adrenochrome and the myth of adrenochrome has been around for a long time. Now, I also recently, um, in a, a podcast in the C report, Go to qnaholespodcast.com to check that out. I recently had talked about uh, Stephen King writing a, a blurb for Hunter Biden's new book, where Hunter Biden was told by Stephen King about riding the pink horse. Pink horse, I believe, being a reference to adrenochrome. So this is how I'm tying that all together. So adrenochrome, it's it's a, it's something. There is something to do with this. Okay, so people always said adrenochrome was a myth. Adrenochrome was something uh, um, created in fiction. It was created to be unreal, and then you could go to the internet and you could look up adrenochrome, and they would give you like the molecular breakdown and the compounds that it takes to make adrenochrome and what adrenochrome actually is. So according to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas in the book and in the movie, adrenochrome is the adrenaline-soaked blood 
of a human being. And they're like, oh, well, how do you extract that? Well, he's like, this one came from a fresh adrenaline gland. So, I mean, if you want to have a trip, you're going to have a trip. And if you've seen... Um, if you've seen Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and you've seen the adrenochrome trip scene with Johnny Depp, then I don't know if it's true. I am I am willing to I am willing to gamble. I am willing to gamble beyond a shadow of a doubt that in method acting, Johnny Depp tried some adrenochrome to see what it would do to him so that he could do that film if he were not tripping on adrenochrome in that film himself. I guarantee it because Huntress Thompson was a gonzo writer. He was a gonzo journalist. So he put himself in his stories to tell the story to his editors. I bet you money that's the kind of actor Johnny Depp was. So think about that because, you know, I mean, method writing is real because how are you going to write a story about a city or a town you've never been to? I mean, come on, go back to my, go back to my episode. It's like episode four. And the title of the episode is Go, Go, Method Writer Breakdown. And I talk about method writing in there because people are going to smell your bullshit if you're writing about a place you've never been. Hello, you need to have the experience. And that's why people would always tell me when I was growing up, why do you want to be a writer? You should do that when you're 50. The wisdom that I was not listening to back then was you haven't lived life and experienced enough to know to write a book. To that, I said, well... Let me go ahead and live a life that's worth writing about. Ha! Just kidding. I didn't say that. Um, that is a quote um, that says it was, I, I, this might be either Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin. It's one of these two guys. And the quote is, if you don't write something worth reading, live a life worth writing about. Think about that. The next time you decide that you want to be a writer and you've got nothing to write about. Fiction would be easier because, um, I mean, like, science fiction, I mean. Not, like, just fiction fiction. Like, if I want to write a fiction book and it's about New Orleans, then I'm going to have to go to New Orleans and experience it. Because I can't just write a book about New Orleans and then not fucking have ever been there. And be like, oh, the air smells like this. And it actually smells like that. And oh, the vibe of the town was this. But it's actually like that. And oh, the buildings looked like this in the sunlight at dawn. But they actually look like this in the sunlight like dawn. Like I, as a writer, want to make sure I get you the detail that is pertinent to the actual reality that you might experience if you're there yourself. Because that should be an accurate reflection in Fiction. Okay, none of the stories and the actual happenings of the characters, that's different. But the place, and that could that could add to the total vibe of the story. And that's what I do as a writer. So, you know, like, set me up somewhere so I can have some experiences and write a book about it, you know. But, um, that, <laughs> and Vegas and etc. But, like, you know, so that's why I don't doubt that someone like Johnny Depp might have 
had adrenochrome. And in fact, I do believe that Johnny Depp is a, an adrenochrome junkie. And I just, it blows my mind because here's a man that I think is so weird, quirky, and versatile. I never would have put him in that uh, a boat, but um, I'm pretty sure. And you know, because I say things like, ooh, I th- I say things like, ooh, Mike Pence. Now, that's a room I would not want to be alone and naked in the dark with. You know what I mean? Like, ooh, like, ooh, Danny DeVito. That's a man I would not want to be naked and alone in the dark with. But Johnny Depp? Does anyone ever say Johnny Depp? That's a man that I don't want to be naked and alone in the dark with. Well, let me tell you what. Now that I know the things that I know about him, I probably would not want to be alone and naked in the dark with him. And I feel bad for any children that might happen to be alone and naked in the dark with him. But as I was saying about Adrenochrome and going back to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, in the book, he talks about it being fresh from the adrenaline gland of a human. So... There is like some telltale there in his book about Satanism and its link to adrenochrome or adrenochrome's real existence, the reality of adrenochrome. And then it's tied to a Satanist. Well, what's the link there, I wonder, etc. You know, but... Hunter S. Thompson, as I said, Alex Jones, he's the one that I heard that first. Never looked into it, never looked it up. But, you know, as it turns out, it might be. So I thought, okay, so Hunter S. Thompson's writing about him. And that's why in this book, Kingdom of Fear, is said to have been a tell-all about the Bush dynasty. Hello. But at the same time, it was published after he died. So let's see if he did tell all about the Bush dynasty. Let's see if he did commit suicide under duress. You know what I mean? But at the same time, I was like, well, maybe, uh, maybe Hunter, uh, Hunter, yeah, maybe Hunter S. Thompson knew about, and maybe, and maybe Hunter Biden named his son after Hunter S. Thompson, but maybe Hunter, maybe Hunter S. Biden knew something about the Bush family, and maybe he knew something about pedophilia, maybe he knew something about snuff films, maybe he knew something about human trafficking, maybe he something, he knew something about child trafficking, And he wrote about it in Kingdom of Fear. And then they threatened him and he committed suicide under duress. And then after he died, the book was published and they took all of that out. I don't know. We're about to find out when I go through this book. But then I found some articles that kind of talked about some other things like this. Like this. Oh, like this. Okay, it says here. Oh, look, check this out. This is a quote from uh, one of Hunter S. Thompson's books. Um, or it's a preface or foreword, but it's something that Hunter wrote. Hunter wrote this and... I was like, ooh, this is interesting. Now, keep in mind, Hunter S. Thompson is being published by 
the likes of Rolling Stone. He is being exalted as a Gonzo Underground writer. He's a wacky, kooky writer. He's a journalist. He's Hunter S. Thompson. He's Hunter S. Thompson. He's Hunter S. Thompson. We love Hunter S. Thompson. Okay. Hunter S. Thompson says this. He wrote this. The autumn months are never a calm time in America. Back to work, back to football practice, etc. Autumn is a very traditional period, a, a time of strong rituals and the celebrating of strange annual holidays like Halloween and Satanism and the fateful harvest moon, which can have ominous implications for some people. Autumn is always a time of fear and greed and hoarding for the winter coming. Debt collectors are active on old people and fleece the weak and helpless. They want to lay in enough cash to weather the known horrors of January and February. There is always a rash of kidnapping and abduction of school children in the football months Preteens of both sexes are traditionally seized and grabbed off the streets by gangs of organized perverts who traditionally give them as Christmas gifts to each other to be personal sex slaves and playthings. Most of these things are obviously wrong and evil and ugly, but at least they are traditional they will happen. So knowing that Hunter S. Thompson was the kind of person that would, I don't know, drive you to the edge of a ravine and hold you over with one hand just to see what you look like when you're afraid. Knowing that he knows these things and speaks about them with fact means to me that maybe he wasn't just aware of some of these horrors of snuff films that maybe the Bush dynasty or people of power and interest were involved in, but maybe he was able to condone it. And that doesn't sit well with me. This might be our day of reckoning with Hunter S. Thompson. This might be the day that I part with Hunter S. Thompson as one of my heroes. Um, I will read the book, though, because, I mean, we have to be able to make a full opinion based on our own research. But here's one that I found called Hunter Thompson, pedophile snuff film director at Bohemian Grove. So get ready for this one. It says, um, a controversial... Okay, so before I get into this, and, and this one actually I found off of a Google group, but the references to this article come from a book called... Um, uh, it's the something cover-up. Oh, I'll find it here. Okay, but it has to do with Larry King. Now, I don't know if any of you all know who Larry King is, but there was a, um, unite, a politician by the name of Larry King, interestingly enough, who ran a sex ring 
um, out of homeless boy shelters like in the 1980s, I think. And um, I always thought it was interesting that there was a famous reporter named Larry King because it was almost like as long as we have this Larry King here, no one will focus on the Larry King over in like Nebraska or something. But it says, the article says, and so this, oh, the Franklin cover-up. Thank you. This book is the Franklin cover-up. So the only reason why I lend some credence to this is because this actually came from reports and witnesses from people who were included in this book, the Franklin cover-up, which has to do with Larry King and stuff. So it says a controversial author, Hunter S. Thompson, was allegedly linked to Larry King as implicated in Paul Bonacci's testimony in which the pedophile's victim, uh, the pedophile victim revealed that Thomas directed a graphic snuff film made near Sacramento, California at a location called Bohemian Grove. Now, that was from the Franklin cover-up, the book, the Franklin cover-up, pages 102 through 105 and page 327. Bonacci flown numerous times across state lines for sexual exploitation to Washington, D.C. and other cities, testified on videotape, for Nebraska State Police investigator Gary Corridori, Bonacci said that while on a trip to Sacramento, he was forced at gunpoint to commit homosexual acts on other boys before he watched other men do the same, after which the boy was shot in the head. In separate testimony, DeCamp said Bonacci told him Larry King was smiling and laughing the whole time the film was being shown. As the men watched, they passed Nicholas, another victim, and me around as if we were toys and sexually abused us. And that was also recorded in the United States District Court uh, testimony on February 5th, 1999. So there's already some precedence with this kind of stuff going on in the courts and in, you know, the culture of our life. What I think we should really do is look into this Franklin cover-up because that happened in Nebraska in the 1980s. And like I said, that was this dude named Larry King who was running a child sex trafficking ring out of a boy's home in Nebraska. And Bonacci here sounds like was one of the victims. I think we should look into that. And I think we should investigate whatever happened to all of that. Because I know, I believe the FBI, maybe it was, that kind of got in the way of investigating and kind of closed the case. Like, they never really got... There was never justice given, really, for this entire situation. Um, I think if we were to look into that and find where that stems out into... Maybe there could be a grapple or a hooking place for us to get into these people who have done these things to us. Um, I think that's I think that's something that's worth going into. Let's look up the Franklin cover up. That's Franklin, Nebraska. And then let's get into it, because now we have Stephen King being implicated. Stephen King. Ha, my bad. We have Hunter S. Thompson being implicated as actually having participated. And we know that, that uh, Hunter has himself also talked about, you know, snuff films and stuff and the likes. And um, just to know that he was involved. And the thing about it is I think that he could condone it. I think that he could. I think that I think that 
if anything, Hunter S. Thompson, because in the book, the guy also describes him as a sweet character. And I imagine that he was too. But I think that maybe he was also like one of those people who believe in chaos theory that believes that everything is here by chaos and nothing here has a purpose and everything is chance and everything is what you make of it. You nihilistic, you person, you, you person, you anarchistic person, you like, and, and, and if you're an extreme chaos theory believer, then you believe that at least once a year, karma gives you the right to do whatever you want want with no kind of repercussions for your accountability for your actions and let me tell you that kind of thing is bupkis thinking i don't believe that there's ever a time where our energy does not direct our actions and does not also direct um you know the consequence or the response that we receive to what we put out there so anyways that's all i gotta say this has been a long-winded episode of the experience with michael aaron kasseris um for those of you listening on the podcast thank you for hanging in there we went well over an hour and a half i believe and if you were live with us on youtube thank you for watching and thank you for being here i do appreciate it you make me feel like i'm less alone in this world cheers to that and uh, it'll be two parts of episode 25 on the youtube and it will be a single podcast episode over at the experience podcast this is michael aaron Cost visit me at theexperiencepodcast.wordpress.com um, and just check out what I have there. It's really just kind of like an informational single page. I do also have the ability there for you to donate uh, if you would find it in your heart to donate to this starving artist who is clearly not starving because I'm not skin and bones. But, um, you know, that would go a long way to help me to just be able to do this comfortably and maybe even bring you more things because, hey, the more that we have abundance, the more the wisdom, the wealth, the knowledge that we can share and the more abundant the wealth and wisdom and knowledge we can obtain. So why don't you join it with me and just send over a cash app or a PayPal? That was some crazy snake oil right there. Aha! All right, guys. This is Michael Aaron Kosseris. Go to theexperiencepodcast.wordpress.com. Check it out. Tell your friends. Share, like, subscribe. Go to qnaholespodcast.com and therootofmanyreturns.com. And we will see you next time on The Experience with Michael Aaron Kosseris. <laughs>